Hello, it's Thursday, the 1st of February, and welcome to another edition of Crow 24. I'm your host, Ron Dowell. The main opposition Democratic Party has rejected a proposal to extend the grace period of a workplace accident law for small businesses. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Coming up on Weekly Take, we discuss the legal and political ramifications related to the so-called Dior bag scandal involving First Lady Kim Gani. And then on this week's Explore Korea, we discover the diversity of Korean media art at an exhibition at the Ozhan Museum of Art. We have all that and more on today's Crow 24. A late proposal by the ruling People Power Party to reinstate and extend the grace period of a workplace accident law for small businesses has been rejected by the main opposition Democratic Party. For more on this contentious subject for the rival parties and our other headlines are today, we have joining us in the studio KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chen. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. So this law had already been in place for large businesses, but it kicked in for businesses with less than 50 people last week. Uh, can you give us more of an intro to this law and the points of contention? Sure thing. The Serious Accidents Punishment Act was introduced in 2022 and the two-year grace period ended last Saturday, meaning the law came into effect. It slaps business owners with a minimum one-year prison term or a fine of up to 1 billion won, around 751,000 U.S. dollars, upon the death or serious injury of an employee in the workplace. While the DP and the labor sector welcomed it as workplace fatalities continued to be reported, smaller businesses associations and the government and the ruling party expressed concerns as the law could lead to businesses closing and firing employees. So a resounding no, though, came from the main opposition bloc. What were their reasoning for the rejection? Well, DP floor leader Hong Yipiu explained on Thursday that it rejected the ruling party's proposal as the DP decided to prioritize the fundamental value of life and safety of workers at industrial sites. The two sites initially agreed to discuss the extension of the grace period as the PPP accepted the DP's demand to set up a government agency on industrial safety as a precondition. But after the DP's general meeting, the main opposition decided to reject the proposal, so the revised grace period bill was not handed, handled rather at the plenary session. And meanwhile, the ruling People Power Party expressed regret over the main opposition Democratic Party's rejection. Uh, Yoon Jae-ok said he is confident the people will judge the DP for neglecting the hardship of some 8 million workers at 830,000 small firms as well as small business owners. On the possibility of rival camps holding another round of negotiations on extensions, Yoon said the DP has shown no stance to engage in additional negotiations at the present time. Yes, we'll see what comes out of uh, future negotiations. Uh, let's turn to other headlines now. President Yoon sung reiterated calls for medical reform as he expressed the government's intent to proceed with an overhaul despite some resistance and opposition. What's the latest here? On Thursday, in a public forum on medical reforms at Seoul National University Pundang Hospital, Yoon said that most people want medical reforms and it's the golden time to push for them. He said it's unfortunate the country must worry about the collapse of the medical system when it possesses the world's best medical professionals and health insurance system. The president underscored the need to secure sufficient number of medical workers to stabilize provincial and essential medical services, noting the surge in elderly workers and demand in the healthcare industry. That's why he pledged to enhance compensation for victims of medical accidents while reducing the burden of medical malpractice complaints against personnel. 
In related news, it's been announced that doctors who received state support through scholarships, uh, training and lodging costs may be required to work outside the capital region for a fixed term. Yes, under the health ministry's measures announced on Thursday, universities, local governments and medical students will sign an agreement offering scholarship, training and housing support in return for practicing in these areas for some time. Doctors can also sign a long-term deal with a regional essential medical institution with guaranteed income and housing support. The medical school admissions quota for applicants from outside the capital area will be increased. Medical malpractice insurance will be applied at a higher standard in regions deemed vulnerable to shortages in essential medical care. The government plans to inject over 10 trillion won or around 7.5 billion U.S. dollars by the year 2028 to raise insurance fees for essential medical personnel based on level of difficulty, risk and overnight shift. Right. This is the latest government proposed initiative seeking to ease the provincial doctor shortage. Let's shift our focus to the trade realm now. Exports increased nearly 20% in January from a year earlier to post growth for the fourth consecutive month. Can you break down the figures for us? Yes, according to trade ministry data on Thursday, outbound shipments marked 54.69 billion US dollars in January, up 18% on year. Exports of semiconductors posted the largest gain in 73 months at 56.2%, maintaining growth for the third straight months. Shipments of Automobiles also rose 24.8%, expanding for the 19th straight month. Exports to China increased 16.1% on-year to $10.7 billion in January, the first spike in 20 months. Shipments to the U.S. also grew for the sixth consecutive month, posting an increase of nearly 27% in January. Imports dropped 7.8% on-year to around $54.39 billion last month. Thus, a trade surplus of $300 million were in the black for eight months straight. Meanwhile, the U.S. Federal Reserve held its key interest rate steady for the fourth straight time. The move was made as it waits for indications that inflation is easing before going for a cut. So what's the latest? So latest is this. On Wednesday, the Fed met market expectations with a decision. The rate remains at 525 to 5.5% for the fourth consecutive time. Jerome Powell also indicated that March rate cuts are unlikely as it waits for evidence that inflation is nearing its 2% target range. The Fed's decision maintains the largest ever 2 percentage point gap with the Bank of Korea's rate, which has remained frozen at 3.5% for a year. So there are concerns of capital outflow as investors may seek larger returns with higher interest rates. Here in Korea, though, Finance Minister Cha Sang-mok has warned that uncertainties surrounding the timing and size of rate cuts in major countries have increased after that decision by the U.S. Fed. Yes, he presented the assessment on Thursday in an emergency economy meeting vowing to respond with vigilance as the Fed's decision induced uncertainties in the global financial markets. Cha said that domestic financial and foreign exchange markets have been relatively stable, but there are potential risks from possible changes in the monetary policies of major countries. He pledged to devise timely responses and announce measures this month to address the perceived undervaluation of Korean stocks. In other news, two firefighters were found dead early on Thursday after being trapped in a meat processing factory in north Gyeongsang province while trying to put out the fire. Uh, can you tell us more? 
Authorities found the two in cardiac arrest at around 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. Thursday, each on the third floor of the factory in Mungyong, where the fire broke out at 7.47 p.m. on Wednesday. The firefighters were 27 and 35 in age from the Mungyong Fire Station. They were isolated and trapped while searching for people and checking for blazes on the third floor along with two other firefighters. It's likely they were unable to escape through the stairs as the fire rapidly spread. Authorities extinguished the main fire after mobilizing 47 firefighting apparatuses and some 340 personnel. The 2024 Winter Youth Olympics comes to an end on Thursday after a 14-day run. Can you wrap it up for us? Yes, the closing ceremony under the theme Shine Again is held simultaneously at 8 p.m. at the Gangneung Oval, the speed skating venue, and the Pyeongchang Dome. The Games, also called the Gangwon 2024, mark the first time the Winter Youth Olympics are held outside of Europe since the inaugural Games in 2012. The event provided the Olympic experience to some 1,800 athletes from 78 countries. Organizers use facilities that were utilized in the 2018 Pyeongchang Olympic Winter Games, so this enabled government to significantly save time and money. Gangwon 2024 helped foster future Olympians and promote the spirit of the Olympics. That's where we wrap up our news briefing today. Thank you for those stories. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index climbed 45.37 points, or 1.82% on Thursday, to close the day at 2,542.46. The tech-heavy Kosdaq fell, shedding 0.51 points, or 0.06%, to close at 798.73. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 2.81 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,331.81. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's time now for Global News Roundup, where we look beyond Korea to talk about issues making headlines around the world. Joining us in the studio for that is our KBS World Radio News Editor, Ku Hee-jin. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, jang We start yet again with the escalating conflict in the Middle East, but this time in the Red Sea. Yemen's Houthi militants said that it struck a U.S. merchant ship in the Red Sea in a fresh attack targeting commercial shipping. This comes after a blow-by-blow as the Houthi militants fired upon a U.S. warship and the U.S. military shot down an anti-ship cruise missile fired by the Houthis. What more can you tell us? Well, the BBC reported that Houthi representatives identified its target ship as the KOI, which it said was US-operated. Maritime security firm Armbri said a vessel uh, operating south of Yemen's port of Aden had reported an explosion on board, but it did not name the ship. And according to Reuters, the KOI is a Liberian-flagged container ship operated by UK-based Oceanic Services, uh, and the same company's fleet includes the oil tanker Marlin Luanda, which was damaged by a missile on Saturday. We should note that Houthis have repeatedly said that they regard Israeli, US and British ships as legitimate targets following Israel's war on Hamas in Gaza, while the US and British uh, have targeted Houthi missile oppositions in their efforts to protect commerce and commercial ships. So it seems the strikes are intensifying in the area. Meanwhile, the US has launched new airstrikes in Yemen, targeting 10 drones reportedly 
being set up to launch. Yes, the US Central Command said its own strikes had targeted 10 drones being prepared for launch in Yemen, which had posed a threat to merchant vessels and US warships in the region. All 10 were destroyed, along with a Houthi drone uh, ground control station, it said. And the Voice of America also cited the US Central Command as saying that one of its warships had shot down three Iranian drones and a Houthi anti-ship ballistic missile in the Gulf of Aden. Uh, the Houthis have carried out more than 30 missile and drone attacks in the Red Sea since mid-October, uh, sorry, mid-November, causing massive disruptions to commercial shipping in the key waterway. Many shipping companies have altered their operations in response, sending ships on the much further and much more expensive route of going around Africa instead of using the link between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. Yes, well, we will continue to keep a close eye on the escalation in the region in the coming days. Uh, Meanwhile, let's turn to our next story now. And speaking of exporters, data from a Japanese auto industry association showed that China overtook Japan as the world's largest vehicle exporter last year. Can you tell us more? Well, according to the Associated Press and Japanese media, the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association reported Japan exported 4.42 million vehicles in 2023, up 16% from a year earlier, while domestic auto sales totaled nearly 4.78 million vehicles. And according to figures released earlier by the China Association of Automobile, Automobile manufacturers. China exported 4.91 million vehicles last year. That was nearly 58% more than the year before. Much of the increase was driven by shipments of electric and hybrid vehicles. Japan's car exports totaled 4.2 million in 2022. It held the uh, role as top exporter since 2017. Overall, auto sales in Japan have been mostly on the decline since 2000. China had already been exporting more vehicles than Japan on a monthly basis, uh, but uh, Wednesday da- Wednesday's data confirmed that it was also number one for the whole year. And the key reason for this, I understand, is China's growing global dominance in electric cars. Indeed. The Japan Times reported that uh, Japanese giants such as uh, Toyota and Nissan have uh, been much more cautious than their Chinese counterparts like BYD on electric vehicles, banking instead on hybrid models. Japanese manufacturers have long bet on hybrids that combine battery power and internal combustion engines, an area they pioneered with the likes of uh, Toyota Prius. But they have to up their game with Toyota aiming to sell 1.5 million EVs annually by 2026 and 3.5 million by 2030. Now, on the other hand, Chinese EV firms, backed by strong government support, have stolen a march on more established rivals such as General Motors, Volkswagen and Toyota. BYD in the fourth quarter of 2023 even snatched Tesla's crown for most sales of all electric vehicles, according to to this month's figures. But there, we, here we should note that Japanese auto giants such as Nissan and Toyota have overseas manufacturing bases, so their total production figures may be another matter. OK, so that is one caveat to note. Mm. Uh, let's move on to our final topic. Of the last couple of days, we talked about several stories involving Elon Musk. Mm. Today, we have another tech giant head in the headlines. 
Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Meta, faced a barrage of questions in a Senate hearing on Wednesday, along with other social media executives. This was regarding the mental health risks their enormously popular platforms pose for young people. Uh, during the session, they acknowledged and even apologised for their shortfalls. Can you explain? Well, according to the AP, CNN and ABC News, throughout four hours of grilling before the Senate Judiciary Committee, CEOs of some of the world's most widely used digital platforms acknowledged shortfalls and highlighted efforts they've taken to improve them while pushing back on other criticism. Uh, the senators hammered the CEOs for lobbying efforts that they have uh, said uh, have gotten in the way of federal legislation and frequently received loud applause from families of children who died after being ensnared in some of these sites. And in a remarkable moment, uh, Meta CEO Zuckerberg stood up to address those families in a, with a uh, direct apology for what they've endured. The Senate Judiciary Committee, in a hearing intended to drum up support for federal reg- legislation to safeguard children from the online world, also heard from the chiefs of X, TikTok, Snap and Discord. The hearing was held amid heightened concerns about the dangers to young people. It was indeed a rare moment seeing Zuckerberg apologising to the families in the Senate hearing room, but the hearing ultimately left the biggest elephant in the room uh, unanswered. Will Congress try to impose new regulations on these platforms, even given the bipartisan consensus seen among the senators? Mm -hmm. uh, If so, to what end? Yeah, unfortunately, the question still remains. Legislation is currently going through Congress, which aims to hold social media companies to account for material posted on their platform. Sexual exploitation of kids online is a growing problem in the US. According to the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, daily cyber tips of child abuse, uh, uh, child sexual abuse material online have gone up tenfold in the past 10 years, reaching 100,000 daily reports in 2023. Mm-hmm. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our Global News Roundup. Hijin, thank you for bringing us those stories. Thank you. This is documentary director Lee Jin-young. You're now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Next up, it's Weekly Take. This is our regular in-depth segment where we invite our panel of expert commentators to give their take on some of the biggest political and social issues of the week, helping our listeners to look beyond the headlines. Joining us this week, we have first on the line, Law Professor Chu hee Young from Hong University. Professor Cho, hello. Hello. And this week, we also have with us Law Professor Song Serian from Kyung University. He joins us on the line as well. Professor Song, hello to you too. Hello, happy to join you. Okay, so we're doing things a bit different this week. We're going to be looking at one topic and delving deeper into it because there are a lot of talking points. And that is the ongoing controversy surrounding the First Lady Kim Gunny. 
and a high-end designer bag that she received from a Korean American pastor in 2022. Uh, we are largely going to look at this issue in two parts. First, the legal ramifications, and then the political. But first, Professor Chul, can you help bring our listeners up to speed on this case and the allegations raised against the First Lady? The alleged incident took place in September 2022, but the secretly filmed video of the exchange was only released late last year, right? Right. And the person who actually filmed it uh, is this pastor, as you mentioned, the Korean-American. And he's a fairly well-known campaigner for unification. Uh, and he's actually visited North Korea several times and written books on the subject. And he was a, a an existing acquaintance with the first couple even before Yoon uh, was elected president. And he was actually on the guest list for the president's inauguration party where only a select number of uh, VIP guests were invited. Anyway, so back in 2022, he had requested a meeting with the First Lady uh, to share advice, he says, on unification issues. And in order to, when he requested this meeting, he actually uh, gifted her Chanel cosmetics worth about 1.8 million won. And he said that he was surprised that she didn't decline the gift. At that meeting, he claims that he overheard Kim being engaged in a, in a telephone conversation that seemed to indicate that she was sort of meddling in state affairs. And he became concerned and he decided to record the next meeting that uh, he has with her. And so next time uh, he requests a meeting and this time he actually offered her uh, this luxury designer handbag because uh, previously he had actually uh, presented a gift of some you know, clothing to her and he, he got no response. But with this handbag, uh, he got an immediate response from her on this messaging uh, application and uh, scheduled the meeting there and then. Uh, and at this meeting, uh, she accepted the handbag saying, oh, you shouldn't bring this kind of expensive gift but you know she could have easily refused it, but she didn't. Uh, and the handbag was sitting on the table, uh, and this was all being filmed uh, unbeknownst to her uh, by his wristwatch. Uh, and that's essentially the gist of the the current scandal. Right. Uh, so first, Professor. Uh, Professor Song, in January, the state's anti-corruption agency said it's looking into the allegations that the first lady improperly received the designer bag. But legally speaking, is it legally problematic for the First Lady to receive gifts if she subject to the anti-graft uh, Kim Young-lan law? Uh, what laws apply in this case? Well, uh, potentially. Um, I, I think you can think about think of uh, three different situations regarding the gift that she received. First is uh, straightforward, the, the bribery uh, under the criminal law. But I don't think people are focusing on this because there's no a connection between the gift and the the kinds of promises or the, the benefits that, that are conferred or promised. Uh, I think more uh, appropriately, what you suggest is the, the Kim Young-nan book. The formal name is the Improper Solicitation and Graft Act. 
uh, which uh, in a popular parlance, we refer them as a kimyongnanpo. And the, what it uh, uh, prohibits is that whether it is related to the job or not, the public official cannot receive uh, the, the gifts uh, uh, over a certain amount. That's uh, one million won hmm. at one time or three million won at a fiscal year from a same person. Now, the, the kind of difficulty in prosecuting this is that although the law says that you, uh, the, the public official's wife uh, is included uh, as a prohibition, there is no penalty clause. So I even if she is found to be to be in contravent uh, on uh, on this law, uh, there is no provision to punish her. In fact, uh, one person sure to be punished punished is the person who uh, provided it. Now, third is the whether this gift is uh, class it can be classified as a presidential gift so that uh, it should be uh, kept uh, kept aside and be sent to the the preservation office but i, I think the difficulty is that the, she has not received this uh, in any relation with the president's duty uh, of course you can argue that she received this uh, gift because she's the wife of the president but uh, proving it would be uh, pretty difficult and uh, that's why the, the president's office is that this is not something that the, the first lady has uh, done anything in uh, in violation of that particular uh, act uh, act uh, on management of presidential archive so uh, in each case, I, I think that people's suspicion is that not only there is a, a expensive, well-known uh, gift, but uh, I, th I think there is a long line of kind of uh, knee-jerk re reaction. Uh, the, the recent past of uh, the Park Geun-hye, that there are allegations related to that uh, charge that uh, somebody else other than the public official is handling or the, the controlling the national matter. Right, so Professor Cho, do you have anything add, to add to Professor Song's uh, comments there? So is this perhaps the most pertinent law is the anti-graph law, do you think? And has there been any similar cases in other countries? How do other countries deal with gifts that are perhaps privately given to the First Lady? So just to summarize, uh, two potential pieces of legislation that could apply are the criminal code, and in particular the bribery provision under the criminal law, and also this anti-graft act that um, Professor Song has mentioned. But the problem is that in both cases, because the First Lady is not a public official as such, uh, it's very difficult to uh, equate or directly relate the gift with uh, any duty that she might have as a first lady. Uh, the anti-graft law can be applied to the partner of a public official, but there is no penalty clause. So there is a big uh, loophole in the current legislation. However, we can actually draw an analogy to this current case, to the um, case of former Justice Minister Cho Guk, who has actually been found guilty of breaching the graft, the anti-graft 
law, the Kim Young-nam Bob, for the scholarship that her his daughter uh, received, the six million won scholarship his daughter received while attending medical school, because the court found that it was the equivalent of uh, being given to himself, uh, the, the the scholarship that was given to his daughter, because it was given by the donor in order to maintain good relationship with him. Uh, it wasn't really, you know, the, the daughter's sort of outstanding abilities as a scholar that merited the scholarship. Uh, now, the case is being appealed by uh, Mr. Chokuk, but we can draw a very clear analogy between this case and the uh, and the First Lady's case. Mm. Uh, again, the distinction is that the President himself has immunity while in office, but once uh, he is no longer in office, he could potentially be prosecuted for uh, for this very charge. Okay, so it does seem like there is somewhat of a grey area in this situation. Uh, meanwhile, the floor leader of the main opposition Democratic Party has called prosecutors to investigate the matter as well, but we will see if it does turn into a legal case. In the meantime, there have been far-reaching political ramifications related to this as well, so much so that's even attracted the attention of international media. Last week, the BBC ran a piece called uh, First Lady's Dior Bag Shakes the Country's Leadership. It said the controversy over South Korean First Lady Kim Gunny allegedly accepting a luxury bag uh, has thrown its ruling People Power Party into disarray. It added that some analysts say that the scandal threatens the prospects of President Yoon sung yeols party in the April general elections. Meanwhile, The Guardian reported something similar, saying that uh, with a general election just months away, the party of the president is in crisis. Professor Song, what have been the political implications been to this scandal, and how do you think it's affected public opinion? Well, public opinion on this is pretty... Uh, pretty damaging to the president. And this has to be viewed in totality with other uh, the problems that the president has, namely uh, his you know, refusal to, to talk to the opposition party and the relationship with the, the opposition party in managing the national affairs have been pretty um, non-collaborative uh, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, I, I think what it uh, creates is a situation where the, the lack of communication uh, from the president's office to the opposition party and the public in general has created this, uh, again, the knee-jerk reaction that uh, there is uh, something wrong uh, in, in the governance of this country and that the president is not making clear that he is in char- charge of the, the, the issues that need to be talked about and debated. So uh, it is a very a big political risk, especially uh, ahead of the general election uh, coming up. And the low uh, approval rating from the public is uh, reflected. And uh, the, if you ask me what the situation is, uh, for the president to deal with this is that he's failing or the, his staff is also failing uh, to look at what the public opinion is telling him to do. And uh, this uh, first lady uh, risk is getting uh, bigger uh, because there is not enough uh, 
the reaction or the things to address the, the situation for the better uh, outcome. Professor Chaw, what do you make of the political fallout from this scandal? And do you think it is affecting people's minds uh, ahead of the general elections and how they might vote? Oh, completely. I think this is having a hugely negative impact uh, on both the president's approval rating as well as the Conservative Party's uh, approval rating. And this can also be evidenced by the fact that Conservative newspapers that have been bending over backwards to try to put the first couple in less light uh, are now actually penning some really damning, you know, columns saying that the first lady's risk should be handled in some way. And also by the fact that the first lady, who really seems to love the limelight, uh, has not been shown in public uh, ever since this scandal broke out. Uh, I think it's really uh, turning, particularly the uh, the swing voters, uh, those in the middle away from the Conservative Party, and it's going to have a significant impact in the next uh, general election, I suspect. Professor Song, some members of the ruling party and President Yun's supporters have defended the First Lady, saying that she's the victim here of a hidden camera entrapment scheme plotted by uh, President Yun's political opponents. The Korean-American pastor uh, said he uh, received the deal bag. Uh, well, the, it was the uh, left-leaning uh, YouTube uh, media site uh, that funded uh, the purchase of the bag, and they are the ones who uh, uh, released the video as well. Professor Song, what do you make of this argument that she was the victim of entrapment? Uh, certainly, that argument has some um, merit uh, because the the voice of Seoul uh, the, uh, has carried out this uh, what we call mocha or uh, the secret uh, entrapment kind of the the interview. Uh, I think it is a huge problem. Uh, but I think I'll, I'll step back and say that. It, regardless of the problems that uh, this kind of method of uh, the investigating uh, is also uh, should be considered whether the, her action of receiving this expensive gift uh, in light of the laws and the expectations that people have uh, has created another problem. So it, the, those are two separate issues. Uh, this method of uh, investigating and also uh, her uh, behavior in in terms of uh, accepting this kind of gift and not explaining uh, the whole situation, uh, whether uh, him, herself or by the president. So I, I would uh, look at the both problems in equal weight. Uh, I, I don't think two wrongs make it right. Uh, and from the political point of view, I think that regardless of what kind of unethical, unprofessional method of investigation that the voice, uh, voice of Seoul has conducted uh, still remains is her behavior and the evaluation mm. of her, her action as the first lady and as somebody close to the public official, ultimate public official of the president. Well, there is increasing pressure on President Yun with the elections uh, coming 
in less than 70 days now. There is a speculation that President Yoon might address the issue in some sort of media interview to try and put it uh, behind him and for the party as well. Professor Cho, how do you think the presidential office should deal with this issue? Well, so far, they haven't made a peep over this issue. And even if the president holds some kind of, you know, uh, media interview about this, I think it's going to be just too little, too late. And how can you explain away this kind of thing? Uh, and with respect to Professor Song, I think we, we can't really place same kind of weight uh, on what uh, the Voice of Seoul did and what the First Lady's conduct uh, was. You know, she could have refused, she should have refused, or she had to refuse the gift in that kind of situation. And according to the pastor, uh, there was, when he came out of the meeting with her, there were other some other people waiting to for her audience who had in their hands bags, most likely containing gifts from a, a famous duty-free shop. I don't know what was in uh, those bags, but I would expect something similar along those lines. And most likely this kind of conduct might have continued from even the days as uh, the, the wife of uh, Prosecutor General when Yoon was in that position. Now, you can condemn uh, Voice of Soul for employing this kind of uh, device to gather evidence, but there, even in you know, uh, legal practice, there is something called trap purchase, which is essentially used to uh, gather you know, evidence of illegal activity by, for example, counterfeit uh, makers and things like that. And so I don't think you can really sort of say that this is mm. of the same kind of uh, you know, weight. Right. Um, how, yeah. So uh, in, in terms of the president's office dealing with this, they should really look at the examples of other countries. You know, a former Honduran first lady, the former Taiwanese first lady, the former Malaysian first lady. The last was actually sentenced to life imprisonment for accepting bribes while in office. This is going to catch up. And the further they kick the can down the road, the worse it's going to get. And they really should come out in the open, uh, limit the First Lady's uh, appearance and influence in public, uh, and really become more transparent. Right, we are out of time, so unfortunately we are going to have to leave it there. Professor Chua, Professor Song, thank you both for your opinions, uh, as always. Thank you. My pleasure, thank you. Next up, it's our weekly segment, Explore Korea, where we journey across the peninsula, discovering more of the country's cultural, historical and travel highlights. And we do that with our special panel of contributors or explorers, as we like to call them. And joining us this week, it is the turn of Shin Min-hee, culture reporter for the Korea Jung Daily. Minhee, hello. It's great to see you again. Hello, Jung Ho. It's great to be back. Okay, so what do you have in store for us today? Uh, well, today we're going to be traveling to Gyeonggi again, to a city called Osan. Mm. Last time I talked about Gwacheon and how it's extremely close to Seoul, but Osan is a bit further down south, just beneath Suwon. Luckily, Osan is still easily approachable by public transportation. Right, there are subway and bus links from Seoul. Right. Uh, in Korea, one thing I like to do when I travel is visit the art museums in each city. So in Seoul, you would have the Seoul Museum of Art, and in Busan, you would have the Busan Museum of Art. So in Busan, I visit 
I visited the Osan Museum of Art last week. Mm. It kicked off its latest exhibition called Change and Convert, and it's filled with the works of seven local media artists. Right, seven local Mm -hmm. media artists. Interesting. Okay, can you tell us more about media art and Korea's history with it? When we think of media art in Korea, the name I'm sure that will be springing to a lot of people's minds is, of course, the one and only uh, Peng Namjoon, who you mentioned the last time you were here on the show as well. Right. Uh, when he said that uh, Ping Namjoon was for another day, I didn't expect it to be so soon. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, Ping Namjoon is dubbed the pioneer of video art, and to this day, he's he's considered a legend. It's like how you never uh, talk about basketball without mentioning Michael Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite a comparison, right? Yes. <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, video art and media art are basically in the same category, and that they're both art forms that rely on video technology. Ping uh, Namjoon actively used analog television monitors and videotape recorders and laser beams, and whatever he did with them was just so innovative and ahead of his time. Mm. He was creative and he really knew how to think out of the box. Mm. Uh, for instance, he would make robot statues out of television monitors or stack uh, television monitors on each other to form a, a TV cello. And then he would get uh, actual performers, take out their bows, and play those TV cellos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or some could be really silly, like attaching huge magnets to TV screens in order to uh, intentionally distort the images. Mm. Uh, it's really cool because it would show these wavy rainbow patterns, or it would seem like there's a filter on whoever's on the screen. Right. And... Uh, you have to consider the background for when Ping Namjoon was active, uh, because this all happened from the 60s to late 90s. Uh, so you can only imagine how futuristic his works would have been at the time. But Ping Namjoon is celebrated because he did pave the way for media art to continue to develop over the years uh, all over the world. Indeed, he's a much celebrated figure, not only in Korea, but around the world. And as striking as his works are, though, uh, they do, I feel, very much reflect the times they were created, especially with the use of uh, analogue TVs. They feel almost retro now. They might have felt, uh, I think, futuristic at the time, but now there's a retro vibe, I feel, when you look at his works. Mm -hmm. So then uh, you talked about how he has helped pave the way for media art to develop uh, in the years uh, after him. How has media art changed then? Is this something we see reflected in this exhibition as well? Yes, uh, this exhibition, in my opinion, is a great way to see how media art is portrayed in the 21st century. Mm. Uh, and Because since they're all by contemporary artists. Uh, but the thing with media art is that the only medium that these artists can work with isn't just television monitors and videotape sets now. Uh, it basically has no boundaries. Uh, in the show, in addition to videos, we can see a talking AI robot, digital drawings, and even we can travel back in time, uh, which I'll elaborate more in a bit. Uh, there are also some pieces that have digitally reinterpreted uh, The Last Supper by uh, Leonardo da Vinci right. and traditional Eastern paintings. Wow, okay, so it sounds like there's certainly a lot. Did you say a talking AI robot? Yes, I did. Uh, this is by artist Nojina, and she's known for creating these grotesque robots that can speak. Hmm. Uh, by grotesque, uh, think half-human, half-tree with metal rods protruding from their head. Uh, yeah, basically creatures that are definitely going to be in your dreams <laughs> and nightmares. <Okay. laughs> 
the robot in this exhibition is, unfortunately for children, at the entrance of the museum. Right at the entrance. Okay, yeah. so you'll be faced with this mm-hmm. uh, uh, this robot then when you come to see this exhibition. You might be surprised. Uh, you just sam- simply can't miss it. It's this ginormous white uh, human head that's bald, and it has bulging eyes that follow your movements. And uh, I don't. If I had to put it in words, I guess that one eye is probably the size of your head, Chang-ho. I'm not joking. <laughs> right, so it's big. Yes. Uh, so you can go up to it and initiate a conversation by asking it questions. Uh, sometimes it just eavesdrops and answers for itself, in a, and it has a really low, uncanny voice. Uh, last week at the museum, the CEO of the Usan Cultural Foundation was talking to reporters in front of the robot, and after the conversation was finished, the robot just replied in Korean, I see, good job. <laughs> <laughs> And a different reporter was rather playful that day. And he went to the robot and asked, haven't we met before? And the robot replied, yes, long time no see. This is very interesting. It is a very timely work considering uh, the progress we've seen with AI technology over the last uh, couple of years Mm -hmm. with chatbots and the like. These responses, they seem like some of the chatbots that we've seen uh, in the last year, such as ChatGPT. Still, you wouldn't necessarily imagine that you would uh, talk to chatbots with a giant head. Right. Uh, We have, I understand, uh, pictures that you took uh, from the exhibition, which Mm -hmm. we'll be putting up on our social media feeds, uh, such as Instagram, KBS uh, underscore Career 24. So our listeners, if they want to see what it looks like and the size of this thing, uh, they can check that out uh, there as well. Mm -hmm. What do we know about the artist's intention behind creating these robots? Uh, well, artist Nojina has said that she wants to make this, these machines so similar to humans to the point that we would have to ask ourselves, what exactly is the criteria when distinguishing machines from living creatures? Uh, what if any machine just end up, ends up developing to the point that we can't tell them apart from us and our interactions become so natural? Uh, to the artist, it's not about competing against these robots. It's mm. about finding a way in how we can actually coexist with them. Right. Well, that's uh, very sci-fi, reminiscent of the film Blade Runner mm-hmm. as well. Uh, as bizarre as it is, I think people will get some fun out of it uh, when they go see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that you can also go back in time in this exhibition. What's that about? Uh, so there's a phone booth in the exhibition where you can go in and call a specific year between 1948 and 2023. And there's a screen in front of it, which will travel back in time to show a certain historical event from the year that you just dialed. Okay. Uh, this piece is by artist Lee Jae-hyung, and it focuses it focuses on the history of both Ulsan and Korea in general. Mm. Uh, so last week, for example, at the museum, the artist himself demonstrated it by dialing 1948. And apparently it was the year that our country got the name Minguk or Republic of Korea. Mm. And the screen showed a footage with lawmakers from that time uh, voting for that name. Wow, I see. That's, uh, that's pretty neat. It's sort of like a history lesson. It is. And I saw a picture of the phone booth as well. It reminded me of another film, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> uh, all of these... Uh, 80s film references are starting to show my age. So let's perhaps move on uh, before (laughs) I further show uh, my old tastes. Uh, What other key points are there to look out for in this exhibition? 
Oh, well, even just by the two artists I mentioned earlier, you can probably tell that there's a lot of interactive art in the exhibition. So it's different from other art shows where you just stare at a painting or a sculpture and just move on. Uh, you get to make a certain, your own experience with these artworks. Okay. And I think this is what makes uh, media art so interesting because uh, like with the magnet television I mentioned earlier as one of Ping Namjoon's uh, works, it was at a different exhibition, but I remember that visitors were allowed to move the magnet around and to change the distortion uh, on the screen. Mm. Uh, but back to this exhibit, there's also a piece where you can draw water flowers onto a screen and your drawing will be projected onto a white full moon. Uh, it's an immersive piece, meaning that the digital art is projected onto all the four walls and the ceiling and the floor. So it sort of envelopes you. And when, uh, and like you're actually inside that fantasy-like situation. Mm. Uh, and when you're a water flower drawing in the moon, the drops from the ceiling, you, feel, you kind of feel like you're falling along with it and you're like caving into the floor with wow. it. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like there's a lot for visitors to do and experience themselves and get involved in. And from the sounds of it, it sounds like you had fun as well. Um, so this is an exhibition that you recommend then? Yes, uh, I definitely recommend. But I guess I better come clean before I end our uh, exploration today. I'd actually never heard of a city called Ulsan until about two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> I admit I'm no ge geography expert, but in my defense, uh, it's one of the smallest cities in Gyeonggi. Mm. Uh, it's only uh, a 14th of the size of Seoul, and it used to be classified as an up until the 90s, which is the equivalent of a town. Uh, so I feel that it's really meaningful when lesser-known cities get the chance to really step up their game in the cultural field mm. and be able to bring in more visitors. Uh, and I feel like it's like catching uh, uh, two birds with one stone because if you hear that there's a really cool exhibition someplace, uh, you'll obviously want to go visit. And at the same time, you'll, you'll be able to explore that city. So it's a fun exhibition, so, and it's free. And like I said earlier, the museum is easily approachable by public transportation. And the show continues until March 24th. So uh, I would recommend that you visit when you can. Indeed, and we always like free events here on Explore Korea. <laughs> well then, uh, that was the media art exhibition called Change and Convert at the Osan Museum of Art, and it's uh, on view, as you said, until March 24th. That's where we're going to leave it for our Explore Korea this week. Minhee, thank you for that recommendation, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you for having me. And that's where we wrap up our show. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye.